vicious. And just think about the power that this thing has. That power, that just that sense of ferocity, that strength, that vitality, that energy. That is Urus. Energy. Oh, boom. Energy. It's, that's the charm. It's in there. That's the. That is how you use it. Hela Hilda till, Hela Hilda fron, Hela Hilda till, Hela Hilda fron. All oh, ooh, boom. It's, that's the charm. This mound is raised up on red pillars, three red pillars, and you can see like elves or interesting kind of people partying in there. Now, if you were to go into that mound, for you, you might be there a half hour. You come back out, two years have passed. If we were to look at an old Norse person today, we would go, who's the dandy? You know, what is this thing? It's a completely different interpretation. Plus, in Old Norse society, especially in Iceland, they valued education. Like right there, that's it. You get the chant and you get the shield, right? You hold it over your head and you're going, Hela Hilda Till, Hela Hilda Fron, Hela Hilda Till, Hela Hilda Fron. And that's where you get the galder going. And then when you're finally done, Hela there's Kavadan, all ooh, boom. That's the charm, it's in there. That's the, that is how you use it. Hey everybody, welcome to Rising from the Ashes. We have another fantastic episode for you today to continue our traveling path down the Norse Mythos Month. Let us know how you are enjoying this month. Let us know what you are learning. Let us know what you think. Tell us your favorite Norse Mythos over on Telegram. Now, Telegram is an awesome app. It's a social media app. And yes, in fact, that black scrying mirror that we call a phone is connected to an ethereal net that any human across the earth can now participate in. So Telegram is um, is how a lot of podcasters talk to a lot of people and, and researchers and um, amazing people like yourself, very curious, inquisitive humans, get to chime in and be more immersive in this big, deep dive of uncovering histories mysteries and we all build together and that's where we do it we do it over on telegram and i want to shout out to everybody over there on telegram that is keeping the conversation going you guys are amazing seriously um we couldn't do it without you guys and so i'm going to shout out little da vinci my man uh formerly known as walt's frozen head <laughs> We got Andrea, we got Eric Witt, we got RMA, I'm not sure how to say your name, but I call it Ruma or RMA, um, Shannon, Narcross, all you homies are absolutely amazing, 
and deserve more than just a shout out. You guys deserve a huge, energetic hug, a cosmic hug, some vibrations. And everybody does at this moment, you know. We're, we're passing through the summer. We're fucking breezing through the summer. And um, if you guys are listening to this, um, go and check out our YouTube. We actually have some other content on our YouTube that is... Um, awesome and it's deep dives into materials that have esoteric backgrounds and we have a mirror uh, series right now on the history of mirrors and if you really enjoy this content we would love it if you consider joining the patreon it's three bucks a month we put extra bonus shows on there we got about 60 hours of content and building constantly always growing since we focus on themed months on this normal feat of rising from the ashes anything else that piques our interest or any other interviews or authors or researchers that we speak with we'll just plug it on the patreon and it doesn't have to have a theme or anything but it's always going to be about ancient history or esoterica or science or archaeology and architecture and so much more and it's three bucks a month and if you guys feel like paying it forward we are there And we really appreciate it. And we have more surprises coming up all the time. And so we want to just give a warm welcome to all of you today into this awesome interview. We're going to roll into our RFTA news segment with our in-house herbalist, Fallon from Rising Phoenix Herbals. We're going to talk about some St. John's wort and chamomile today. And it's just a fun conversation. You know, we're just building these relationships with our field researchers uh, for our new segments. And so, you know, we all get to grow together. Like, you guys are watching a a relationship form. And it's just amazing. Everything about this community is great. And I'm going to stop talking now and get right into RFTA News. News you can trust. News you can trust. Fallon Christelle from Rising Phoenix Herbals. And get right into RFTA News. Yo, what's up, Fire Chai? Welcome to RFTA News. News you can trust. Angel does. <laughs> Today we're here with <laughs> Fallon Christelle from Rising Phoenix Herbals, and she has some more plants for us. So, how's it going, Fallon? Great. Good evening. How y'all doing? Pretty well, pretty well. Roman? Pretty well. Yep, yep, not bad, not bad. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's it's the new moon today. It's actually finally upon us, I, even though I'd been feeling the climax of it the past couple days. Um, yeah, I felt like there was, like, some, some good transitional releases happening on this fine day. I feel that. I hear you. 
<laughs> what yeah, uh, having fun too, finding that. Oh that yeah, joy again, as well. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. There's definitely some some good joyousness. What's the uh, what's the what's the deal with the the new moon uh, and some herbs? Like you got some got some herbs calling with this this moonal vibes that we're these lunar vibes that we're that we're feeling here as a society. Absolutely, great question. I wanted to talk about that. So some herbs kind of have an affinity to have a lunar energy about them, and some have more of a solar energy. I would say right now we could make use of both those energies with the new moon and Leo more of a solar energy coming in. So I was thinking more Leo type herbs at this time would be that you might see in your garden or out and about would be maybe calendula, beautiful yellow healing flower that you can use for skin healing and gut healing and liver health and, and salve and lots of neat stuff you find and medicines and St. John's Port is a really awesome herb. I thought I'd mention Leo healing vibes for the liver, for our mood, really help us feel uplifted. It holds its weight in clinical trials against things like Zoloft or depression. Hypercum perforatum is its Latin name. It means bring the light in. So hopefully everybody's bringing some in, right? Bringing the light in these days. I love it. So St. John's Wort, Calendula, Chamomile, all these have some good Leo vibes might vibe with you right now. I'm curious. I, I love St. John's wort. I think I did a segment on it way yeah. back in the day. Uh, did you? And uh, it's been what? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's an herb that I, I was able to uh, ID out in the wild. Um a few years back and then once once you see it you start to see it everywhere and you're like holy wow this this flower is absolutely everywhere and um and then i and i found out that it was uh an incredible uh mood enhancer and so i started practicing with that and found that it in fact does make me feel good but i was kind of curious about you know this saint john character do you have any information on this uh on 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 like that maybe saint name of it why why is it associated with this yeah i've wondered that myself i was reading recently that one of the herbalists you may know gosh she wrote about saint jones wort miss susan s weed who's written a lot of books but i'm not sure about the connection with saint john i'm gonna have to look back into that good question yeah Yeah, i'm curious because you know these saints you know the the saints are mysterious. <laughs> you generally have quite quite a quite a broad history as to how they became saints. You know, yeah. Now and wort meaning herb, so the saint of the herb. What's up with that? Good question. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go for that tonight. I love it. Um, such a beautiful plant. So glad you got to see it in the wild. I mean, that's nothing better than that for sure. Yeah, I, I think it likes like disturbed roadsides, so you'll see it a lot, and which is like not the best for harvesting, right. but I've done it. I'm like, I don't care if it's got oil fumes <laughs> on it. I I will ingest right. those oil fumes. Let's go. I mean, plants have a funny way of growing where they're needed that way. A lot of really amazing plants grow in disturbed soil to cleanse and detoxify the soil. And dandelion, mm. a lot of different plants 
spring do that on purpose to break up the soil or, you know, I wondered about that. I want to do a, a talk about what to eat out in the wild. If boop hit the fan, right? And so if you're out in the parks or you're out and about what you can eat. And, you know, at that point, I guess you're not worried about the pesticide, but what else is on there? But yeah, St. John's yeah. Wort. You find that wild. Throw that in some olive oil and just let that sit for six weeks and throw maybe a splash of alcohol on it and see if it turns red and put that on your nerve pain. Okay. So that that's a question I have too, because I've taken it internally for a long time. I'd make tinctures with it and like just take heavy doses. But you see the St. John's were oil. And that's not like extracted with oil. It's it's diffused with oil and 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 so it has a completely different purpose right. on the outside of your skin. Right. Yeah. I mean oh. you can as a homeopathic that way too, but it's for nerve pain. I mean, St. John's wort, wonderful for nerves, especially sciatica. And you see it combined with arnica for joint or for nerve pain specifically. Yes, definitely. Rub that right on the area and it, it'll help. Usually olive oil or a good base like that. Uh, I, I saw recently on your... Uh, instagram that you were making some concoctions what type of uh things were you making in the in the bottles ah so i'm gonna make some tinctures i've got lemon balm and chamomile and some yarrow growing in my garden that are hopping right now and so i'm just gonna throw those in some vodka and water and let them sit for about six weeks and just make some homegrown tinctures and offer them in small batches to see if people are feeling it uh, I want to make a calendula salve. So what? look for that coming up soon. I'm going to hook up my shop on the Instagram page. And I'm now taking clients too. If anybody wants to do a free herbal intake with me, hit me up on my Instagram, phoenixrisingherbals.com. So I'll be checking out some clients and, and supporting people individually. Sweet. What is the, what is the benefits of... Uh... Mixing with like vodka and, and creating that tincture. What, what would you use yeah. it for? So lemon balm. I love for calming the nerves and holding that space in your heart, working with the heart chakra, calming your nerves, helping with a good night's sleep. It's great for kids as so well. You use it as like a essential oil? So for a tincture, with the alcohol and the water in it, you can just take it by dropper. And okay. usually folks take drops, but you should take three to four dropperfuls a few times a day to really feel the medicinal effects of an herb. Um, and um, I, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I, uh, I'm Dan, I'm a little bit disappointed by that you are on the tincture game. We got to <laughs> get you on the tincture <laughs> game, dude. Yeah. Especially if you if you haven't taken tinctures before, you're more prone to like start to feel the effects of them. So definitely, bro, I don't like maybe maybe starting with some St. John's Ward. That'd be kind of cool to uh to hear uh hear how the St. John's Ward affects affects you. I, I personally I'm a heavy doser. I dose heavy with herbs. Like I will I've taken a shot of St. John's Ward tincture before. 
um, right. which is not a rookie thing. Don't, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> right. not, not safe and not recommended. But <laughs> I will, I, I do it and it's fun. Hey, I could think of worse for sure. I think it's a good idea. I think a lot of folks underestimate herbs though. You know, like some mm-hmm. people are thinking, it's going to take a few drops and it's like, well, we need like three or four, you know, milliliters minimum per dose. So the ounce doesn't sound so far out of the realm. Depending, I mean, you could get yourself into trouble depending on what it is, but St. John's would be safe. The only thing I've read about St. John's word as a side effect necessarily would be extra photosensitivity. And usually that happens when you're taking like a standardized product that has the high pyrocins concentrated. So it, it's more of a, you know, a pill they've standardized it so they made it strong that way no photosensitivity would be the only issue i'd look out for but i think you're safe with it do that shot (laughs) (laughs) yeah and when you go and buy like uh herb farm tincture are you over here on the west coast we got herb farms which is a southern oregon tincture company and uh, a couple other ones but you know it can, it can be you've usually on average around like 15 dollars a bottle for a one ounce bottle and so i'm always recommending buying from you know humans like yourself that are, are making it at home might be able to give you a better deal or just making it at home because depending on <laughs> what sources you buy I mean, you can make an entire bottle of tincture like i mean like a full you know, half gallon size all of tincture for the prices of three ounces of tincture that you can buy from like a, ma- a mass produced um, company. Right. And, and so, yeah, I mean, if you're going to be taking shots, you know, that can be, that can be an expensive true. thing. You know, you're going to find alternatives. Yeah. There. $15 shot. That's true. I think maybe you're paying a little bit for their, their macerating equipment. They're like super fancy you know but otherwise no i think homegrown's the way to go smaller batches some wild crafted herbs or you know some more love thrown in or maybe you can get a, a mix of some vegetable glycerin if, if you need you know to cut back on the alcohol things like that do you have a company that you you tell people if they're just you know anywhere because we have people that listen to the show from all over the world. Whoa. So uh, is there, is there a big company that, uh, that, that you trust um, that does herb um, extractions? I love herb farm. I think they're great. I love Gaia a bit more because from what I know about what they do, they specialize in testing the plant constituents at like peak harvesting times and they're so dialed in. So if you can find Gaia herbs, out of Durham, North Carolina, I think they're a step up, but Herb Farm is still awesome. And they wildcraft some of their herbs and they grow some of their own on their farm. And those are both in the United States, of course. And I usually recommend those. I mean, Nature's Answers out there, I would say they're decent if you can find them, but I would I would do Gaia or Herb Farm, yeah. Nice, nice. I've taken Gaia supplement. I think I took their emotional balance um, capsules okay. before which is pretty good. I, and yeah, they're definitely high quality. Um, no doubt. Herb farm is cool. They do, they do some like, they're more of like a, a hippie style farm, you know, uh, they, they, they take in interns and they'll do interns on yeah. their farm. 
which is really great. So anybody that's looking just to like get your hands dirty, learn some hands on herbalism at the farm, uh, herb farm is cool for that. And that's, that's pH for the farm too, which is rad. Um, let, maybe let's, uh, uh, dive into, um, some chamomile goodness. Like we're talking, what, what would the blend of chamomile and St. John's work be like? You got that kind of relaxing, but also, um, I'm happy, happy goodness. What, what's that blend like? Absolutely. That would be neat to put those two together in a tea. I would say it would also be a nod to your digestion too, because if you steep, for example, chamomile a little bit longer and get that bitter taste coming out, mm. Has that sweet apple flavor. I mean, at first you get that gentle, sweet, relaxing, nervine quality of the chamomile. But if you steep it a little longer, you get a little bit of that bitter. And that will be supporting your digestion for that upset tummy. Or then you add some St. John's wort in there. And that would give a nod to your digestion, but also your liver, which is a digestive organ in essence too. And so I think that would be in the background. Besides mood. Oh, you know, well, ain't nothing wrong with that <laughs> digestion. I was, I was reading this, uh, this book by PB Randolph and it's been fascinating me. He's like this clairvoyant from the mid 1800s. And, um, apparently he was kind of like at tiffs with HP Blavatsky, which is really interesting story. But, uh, you know, he's talking about the ability that all humans have to have a sort of clairvoyant sense and to activate the um, the celestial information and the intuition. And digestion is up there with being one of the most heavily important things to engage in our lifetime to really help regulate metabolism and digestion in order to fully function and allow uh, spirit energy to flow through the vessel. Nice. I like that. That makes sense. Now I'm, I'm curious about uh, the nerving aspect because I feel like a lot of plants are nervines without being like classified as a nervine. Now, right. Or do, do a lot of plants have those types of qualities? And if so, what classifies something as a nervine as opposed to having nervine uh, beneficials? Great questions. There's so many layers to the nervine, I would say. And I think a part of it is supporting the digestion for those of us who get anxiety. Those feelings in our gut, right? That's really tied into our nervous system. We have the vagus nerve running through your digestive tract, which really regulates a lot of that fight or flight and that sympathetic versus feed and breed type of nervous system states. So it's really tied in with digestion there. But I mean, you have nervines that are amazing called trophy restorative, which would be the ability to actually restore nerve function. So that's your milky oat seed and the fresh milky oat stage. That's skull cap that used to be traditionally used for hysteria. You know, those are some of your serious nervines. And then you have some nervines that are more mild and gentle, like chamomile, lemon balm, that are gentle for children, that just kind of gently remind you to bring things in and center and get grounded. I think the nature of plants really helps to remind us to be grounded. And so that nervine quality is in a lot of herbs to a degree. And then 
And you've got some nerve beans that take you to that sedative side where you have the calm of the nervous system, but also sedative. So helping you sleep, like valerian would be a really great example of that, or hops even would be a nerving, but sedating you, really helping you to passion flower, interacting with GABA receptors in the brain, helping you to really calm that monkey mind and reel that in to help you get a good night's sleep. So, I mean, there's so many layers to nerve beans. I'm thinking that's one of the main medicinal properties of plants, really bringing us to our center, for sure. Regulating their nervous system, yeah. Oof, especially yeah, in today's society where we might just have a bunch of uh, nerve damage that we don't even know about. So, you know, I, I think there's, not to go get too conspiratorial, <laughs> but uh you know this this weaving out of of herbalism and and plantology and understanding the constituents of plants is is just not a part of you know just modern mainstream society anymore uh you know it even seems like even just in the 70s you know in the 80s like in the 80s is really when I think you start to see like the home start losing a lot of its homeopathic qualities. Like, you know, even stay at home mothers in the seventies would have, you know, dandelion root or dandelion, you know, things like that. Like, it's just like, so I, I don't even know where I was going with that, but I think just the general aspect of, you know, the nerve damage that happens in our very electrical society. I, I think we can, keep up with it we can keep up with the stress in the mainstream society that that you know with all the things going on but you got to have your fucking plants to keep up with it absolutely yeah there used to be like a community aspect to taking responsibility for your health and i think there's a call back to that so we're trying to bring that back like what can you have in your garden what can you have in your cupboard what do you got a lot of people will be familiar with chamomile tea so now we can grab that for a lot of different things but uh, definitely something to recognize and take responsibility for you know grandma used to have that cod liver oil and we used to you know have things that made sense that we would do for our health and we've lost a lot of that we are definitely overstressed and it's almost glorified to be overworking yourself and you know drinking that coffee and you know, burning the midnight oil and your adrenals get fried. A lot of us have that burnout. There's a lot of herbs that you can, you know, take or drink that help with that on the daily, or you could add some mushrooms and things to your coffee or, you know, just start balancing that out for sure. I'm working on that myself as a, as a mom after two kiddos, seeing the adrenals get taxed and Gaia has a great product for that called Adrenal Support that I would recommend for anybody that just wants a, an amazing liquid phytocap you know, that works really well. Gaia's product is awesome, but yeah. Watch out for your adrenals. Eat your protein and drink your water and manage your stress a little bit. Get some plants in mm-hmm. your life. For sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. This has been fun. Thank you, Dan, guys. Dan, oh, Dan, you're leaning on the mic. You was about to say something. 
no man i'm good uh that was fantastic i uh i think both of you are uh super knowledgeable so it helps uh it's 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 really good to hear these things because for me as like a, a rookie like i know almost nothing about plants so uh that's kind of the reason why i wanted to have this come back too is because i think probably a lot of people out there are like me and don't know a lot and by learning about it like this we can uh start to just you know use the stuff in our garden or a lot of people are planting their own stuff and then maybe they'll think about some of these other things to plant that they never even thought about before and then maybe we can help everybody by starting to use plants more often and get people a little bit more into it at least get the awareness out there so that way they're putting these healthier things into their system rather than you know the pharmaceutical companies and their fucked up drugs and all that shit so yeah <laughs> so it's good to hear it's great to see uh roman here because he has like i said he has a lot better questions than i could ask and so we get a little bit deeper with uh with this you know so thank you roman uh and uh thank roman. you fallon thank you dan yeah thank you dan thank you fallon yeah thank you thanks all around check out <laughs> check out rising Gratitude. herbals rising phoenix herbals on uh tele instagram yeah instagram and uh yeah. show her some love and uh buy something from her or something you know uh or get a consultation find out what you might need in your life and let her help you so uh thank you everybody thank you. and pleasure yeah and that's the news that's the news hello fire tribe welcome to rising from the ashes i'm danu naki dan and i'm the homie romy oh beautiful 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 wonderful existence it is today sir how are you <laughs> doing fabulous man today we are here with kadrick olsen hey i'm psyched to be doing, here kadrick i'm doing really good this is going to be a great time today i'm looking forward to this discussion excellent man um as are we uh will you give the people a little bit of background history uh about yourself for the people that might not know about you sure i'm like some dude like... who knows some stuff and things <laughs> <laughs> fantastic all right let's get into the runes now <laughs> right on well let's see for me i was one of those lucky kids who's parents were open and accepting me of exploring alternate spiritual paths and doing different things because my parents were pretty wacky woo woo themselves. You know, I grew up in a house that was really haunted and to better understand mm. what the heck was going on. My parents had me going to a spiritualist church, which is your typical Protestant church, except for it ends with transmediumship and there's seances in the basement. So I grew up knowing about the paranormal coexisting with the spiritual beings and you know that was a natural normal part of my day you know you could be watching tv you'd see the dial physically changing you'd hear bootsteps going down the hallway weird kind of stuff like that 
but <laughs> growing up in my parents' basement, they had a literal library of books, like anything you want to know about, they were there. And one of my favorite books when I was a kid, young teenager, was Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manly P. Hall, because it talks about so many really cool things. How, how old were you when you when you tapped into that amazingly esoteric piece of work? Probably about 11, 12, 13 Holy years old. Holy shit, nice. Holy cow. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I hit the ground running on this stuff. I've been doing this literally since I was a kid. I mean, I tell people I was literally born into the paranormal because, you know, my mom's obstetrician was Dr. Robert Bradley, who was the basis for The Changeling, the movie The Changeling back in the 80s. You know, so I, I literally born into this stuff. So, yeah, I'm reading Secret Teachings of All Ages, realizing that all of these different groups are all saying the same thing with different words. But I needed to have yeah. some sort of a stable ground for me trying to figure out what I was doing. Well, mind you, I'm starting to get into some really wonky, crazy music. You know, I've got the long hair, not so much of a metalhead now. I'm more goth and industrial now. But back in those early days, I, I tapped into some metal coming out of Britain, a band called Sabbath. It was awesome. And their album, uh, History of a Time to Come, Dreamweaver, was parallel to a book I was reading, The Way of Weird, which was parallel to the Book of Runes I had just gotten. And it's like all of these things were converging at the same time. And I said, all right, that's it. That's my control group. I need to understand this Norse stuff. I need to understand this rune stuff from the very basis of what these things are. So I made that my primary paradigm. And I studied that intently. I took a break when I went to college because, you know, I was doing college and had two internships, full-time job. You know, it was crazy. I didn't have time to do it. And I remember when I got out of college, though, I'm like, okay, I'm really dying here for a spiritual connection. I'm feeling my whole spiritual energy drained. I need to connect with something. And I found a local true group that had just started up. And I remember cringing even before going, going, please don't be role players. Please don't be role players. Please don't people, be people <laughs> dressing up as Vikings going, I'm tough and bad and I'm going to smash you with my ax. I'm like, please don't be this, you know, please be somebody that knows what they're doing. And I got lucky. I could actually have a conversation with these people about the poetic edda, about the prose edda, about the lore, and we can get in depth about it and we could do these rituals together. And I'm like, oh, and so that kind of really cemented me on that path for the longest time of studying Old Norse in the original language, doing my own translation of the poetic edda, really trying to get into the mindset of the Old Norse mystics on their understanding of what the runes were and the practical application of it and how we could bring that into the modern times. Because let's just be honest, straight up front, the lore, the poetic edda, the prose edda, and all the sagas, it's great that we have this vast library of material, but if we really want to understand what old pagan practices, old heathen practices were, every single written word absolutely sucks because it was all written down by Christian bishops who picked and choose mm -hmm. what they wanted to go into the book. They left a lot of crap out and then they massaged it to fit into their own Christian ideals. And we have absolutely no idea how old Norse people really use the runes. We have no idea how they really did bloat, how they really did ritual. All we can do is take 
what works and we know what works. We know what spiritual practices work. We know how seance works. We know how rituals work. We know how to call in deity. We know about evocation. And then we can apply what we have with these little fragments to what we know that works and make it work in a modern context. And that's where I come from. I've got this strong footing in Old Norse lore, literature, history, language, but it's got to be practically applicable in the modern context to our modern time frame and what works for us. And that's my main goal of working with the Norse stuff is how can you use it today in a way that works for you? You know, funny enough, though, you know, bringing up this kind of aspect that, you know, everything we know uh, on the mainstream level about the the Norse mythos and this incredibly exciting, like, branch of theology or, you know, what have you, it comes from a Christian background. It comes from, because we're so close together and time-wise, time -wise, you know, they, they, they interweave together and you know, the religion of writing, right? Like that was a huge thing to the Christians. And, and, but you see this swell uh, within mainstream media and, and, you know, movies and people's interest. Um, but it's, it's, it, it always intrigues me as like someone who's slightly conspiratorial to see this swell and in interest of Thor and things like Marvel and Disney, you know, and Ragnarok coming up and things. And it's just like, wow. And usually you associate with Norse, you know, on a mainstream level, especially on a Western level, obviously. Um, Cause that's really the only thing I know how to compare. That's what I, that's what I am. I'm a, I'm a Western white boy. And uh, that, that it seems like it has this kind of grimy narrative to it. That is only about the dark death. And, you know, this, this just, I don't know that it seems swayed, pitched and swayed in a specific direction. And, you know, it's hard to kind of really understand what it was all about and, and what these, these poems and, and this beautiful, um, beautiful rune system was really all about, because like you said, it seemingly is really only written and, and construed through the Christian viewpoint. And that's terrible honestly <laughs> you're absolutely right modern mainstream interpretation of quote-unquote vikings has multiple level of obfuscation over the years you know the original christian bishops writing down what they had to the romanticization of the early 1800s you know the wagnerians that just kind of really did some weird stuff to it to modern day depictions of the quote-unquote vikings i'm going to say why i'm quoting that in a minute as being these grubby, half-shaven headed, just dirty, grungy men that only cared about killing and destroying. When we actually look at the history and the actual history of it, there's a, a Christian who complains that the Danes actually bathe regularly and comb their hair and make themselves look nice to chase our women away from us. Archeological finds show that the old Norse men and women were very, very, very into grooming. They had nice looking like silk shirts. They had glass beads. They filed their teeth, yes. So they could be a little bit sharper or they had little grooves on them, sure. But if we were to look at an old Norse person today, we would go, who's the dandy? You know, what <laughs> is this thing? It's a completely different interpretation. Plus in old Norse society, especially in Iceland, 
they valued education. Everybody was educated to the highest possible degree as possible. Didn't matter what your social status was, especially in Iceland. You got educated there. You know, Iceland has always been one of the most literate countries in the world because of that. But yet you see TV today and it's just like, oh, let's go kill and go smash. And like, mm, it's just so far off from what it was like. Yeah, well, can we get into what uh, what it was like? How how far back do you think, like the Viking people go, like the the actual people of like Germania and and the northern regions? Because it, we we always kind of just talk about Vikings, and then you know, but where did they come from? That's a good question. Let's talk about the word Viking. Viking is those who are born of the Vic. You know, the Vic is a strait. It's a narrow body of water. And ing at the end of a word means those who are born of. So these are people who come from the waterways. That's all Viking means, not Viking, but Viking mm. means those who are from the waterways. And a Viking, it was a part-time summer job. That was really all it was. It wasn't even a people. It wasn't a culture. It was just a job title, you know, like short order cook, delivery man. It was a job title. And when they did their part-time summer job, it was to get enough money, either through raiding, mostly through trading. And you know, why would you go raid and risk your life when you can go trade and make a crap ton more? But the ratings did happen. But you would do this to get enough money to buy a farm. So you can come back home and be a farmer. A farmer was the pinnacle of this society, not a warrior, a farmer. And these people, the old Norse people, been around for a long, long time. You know, I don't really know the actual origin of them. You know, there's a lot of theories about the migrations of humans across Europe, and that's part of it. But what we do know of runes is the first runes started to appear around the year zero, you know, maybe 200 mm. BC. And it was most likely from a Gothic tribe called the Aralas that were a light mercenary troop that ventured all over mainland Europe. And they would have had close contact with the Etruscan people. And if you look at the old Etruscan alphabet and you look at the old Norse runes, you'll find that they're strikingly similar. So we very mm. much likely think the Aralas, who eventually the word Aralas became known as rune masters. We believe that the Aralas had encountered the Etruscan people, came back into Denmark and Southern Sweden, notably Gotland, and brought with them what became the runic alphabet, the runic Futhork. Mm. And that is sort of the start of the runic era. But it isn't until the 800s to late 1000s, late 1000s, basically, is the Viking period. This is when yeah. all of that raiding and trading was going on. And it was precipitated by really poor resources of the region. These people needed to venture out of their area to get enough materials to feed the people, to get enough money to buy the lands, to sustain themselves. And that's really what the whole cause of the Viking era was, was just exploring. And then when Christianity what? came in, you know, Iceland officially converted over in the year 1000, that brought an end to the Viking era. 
Um, can you can you go into the uh, story of of where the runes kind of came from, uh, the Odin story, and then like uh, what they were used for in the beginning? Was it for language? Was it for magic? Was it for what was it for? That's a great question. Right, I gave you the physical story, the historical story of where runes came mm -hmm. from as letters, as, as language. The mythological story is Odin, the high Norse god, is one of his self-initiation rites to bump himself up in evolution or whatnot. Who knows why he did it? The Lord never tells us. But he hung himself on the world tree Yggdrasil for nine nights. And at the ninth night, he's peered into the depths. He looked down into the deep darkness. And there he found the runes. And with a roaring cry, basically the lore says with a roaring cry, he snatched them up and fell off the tree. Some of these runes he gave to the gods, some to the Vanir, some to the giants, some to the elves, some to humans, and some he kept for themselves, for himself. And what's interesting that it talks about runes is there's a little phrase in there, runar montu fina, runes you will find. Mjörkstorda stava, Mjörkstina stava, you know, very strong staves, very powerful staves. Erfavi fimbulthuler og gerthu ginregen, that were colored by the great singer and shaped by, wait, fadi fimbulthuler, yeah, colored by the great singer and shaped by the high holy rulers. We're talking about a time before time and a place before existence. This is before physical reality came into being when Odin discovered these runes. And he's basically saying that these runes are vibrations. They're vibrations with intentions. And that the letters that we see are actually just a visual mnemonic and a sound mnemonic to tune us into that runic energy that, that you know, permeates all of existence. And so when we get a hold of, let's say, the rune Urus, it has that ooh sound to it, like the letter U, but it, mm -hmm. the, uh, the name Urus is representative of an old Norse bison or an old European bison called the Aurochs. Think of it like the American buffalo, but just like bigger with huge, huge horns, like six foot horns on each side of its head. It's massive, it's primal, it's vicious. And just think about the power that this thing has. That power, that just that sense of ferocity, that strength, that vitality, that energy, that is Urus. Not the shape of it, not the name, that feeling that gets to that. Mm. So now when I'm, I'm working with men who are like in the. You could use that rune Urus. You could say its name. You can visualize its shape but you want to feel in you that sense of that power growing. Mm -hmm. You want to feel your pecs. You want to feel the delts. You want to feel the biceps, you know, as you're about ready to, to do a bench press, you just feel that you feel your butt firmly on the bench. You feel your feet strong on the floor. That's your Urus. And then when you press that, you, that is Urus in action. And the old Norse knew this kind of energy. They knew how to tap into this with sound. And so they developed a form of magic called Galdr, which is singing the runes. 
And so now they can carve the runes into pieces of wood or on their shields, on their swords. And when they sing the names of those runes and they sing it with poetry, those runes and their magic come to life to do everything to help them with victory in battle, to improve their wealth, to increase their health and well-being, to give the prosperity of the land, anything that you need to help to survive, the runes became an integral part in helping those situations be much greater improved. Now, I, I have I have a question on this vision that kind of came <clears throat> into my head when you, you were describing that classic mythos of, um, of Odin hanging himself on the tree. Now, I'll, you know, you can kind of visualize the tree of life as, as earth itself, right? Or the concept of this paradigm or, or, or whatever this reality is. And when he's, you know, the letter nine rings true in uh, a lot of symbolic ways. And I, I went straight to Pythagoras. I, th I thought of Pythagoras, you know, putting numbers to symbolism and then the planets because the original, you know, Greek vowels were nine vowels. And those were symbolic of the planets. And we know that planets have a type of resonant sound coming and emanating off of them. And I'm wondering if there's any um, cohesion between the early runes and maybe Odin's vision of the sound of the universe coming through in this resonance. And I did have in my notes asking if runes were in fact involved with cymatics. And I think you kind of answered that. Uh, intuitively there um, because you do uh, I think you have like multiple books if I'm not mistaken about the singing of runes and that fascinates fascinates me I mean Dan and I are both into resonance we've been diving into to resonance and cymatics and you know as a I, as a as a yoga human myself as a yogi um, I, I can attest to you know ohms in a class transcendent you know and so I, i'm curious about your takes on um on on that about them connecting to the planets at all now the planetary spheres and if i'm not mistaken in pythagoras's time there were seven not necessarily nine but seven yeah. in mm -hmm. pythagoras's time from the sun to saturn and yes they did attribute a note on the diatonic major scale or the diatonic scales that we are familiar with to that and so they did have their mathematical frequencies to it but to correlate it to the runes sort of <laughs> but it's going to take a modern context to get sort of because in the elder futhark there are seven vowel runes and in some of the work that i've done in the modern world this is not traditional based at all but this is you know one foot in the ancient world one foot in the modern world I've taken those seven vowel runes, placed them along the length of the spine based on the sound they make, like ooh at the base of the spine and e at the top mm -hmm. of the head, mm -hmm. ah in the throat, right? And it took me a couple of years to really just get comfortable with it, but I noticed the placements of these runes and the meanings of those runic energies matched the chakra centers. And I went, mm. what? And then I went further and I started taking the notes of the diatonic scale because I played music my entire life. And because Old Norse is like English where you have vowels in every single word, mm -hmm. everywhere. Vowels are hugely important to it. 
that I found that I could take Old Norse poetry, I could take runic inscriptions using the bowels and start writing music based off of these old inscriptions using the seven bowels that are connected to the letters. Now, it's not traditional. There's nothing in the history to back this up, but it is my modern day practice and it works amazingly well. But to address cymatics, I think cymatics is very cool. And when I talk about, we'll leave this out of this discussion, but I have a million different variables to cymatics that cause me to sometimes question the results because I know cymatics mm -hmm. is real, very real, but you know, the size of the plate, the thickness of the plate, mm -hmm. the, the transducer, I, I, you know, that's why I, when every factor is super right. important when you, you know, it's like, well, that's in. why 440 is cre creating this awful image, but I'm like, wait, depends on the plate, right? Depends yeah. on the material. However, runes, the shapes of the runes, the stave shapes are all in 60 and 120 degree angles, which are the same angles that we find in silicon and water crystals. So the runes are reflective of sacred geometry. It's the same geometry that you find in the seed of life and the flower of life imagery. Mm. So there is a piece of it. sacred geometry connection. It, it, so I want to just correct myself because you did it for me. Thank you. Um, connecting the planetary spheres of seven and the original vowels of seven. Um, and then like, and it changed obviously through the, through the alphabet changing. And then we had like five and sometimes Y, which is like Pluto or sometimes Pluto's a planet, but nine being the, the sequence of numbers that was connected to the Pythagorean, uh, religion and stuff. So I, I did get those two mixed up. But the number nine has been coming up a lot for, for me recently and seven, seven, I septenary stuff is just like, it's, a, you know, there's so much to it. I think we were talking to somebody, um, Hreifen Wolfsen not too long ago, and he kind of brought to the con, uh, to, to my understanding, the, the runes being like one piece of a bigger fractal like if you were to take it and make it be the micro of the macro and you were to extend that rune and add the runes and keep it going spiraling out you would get a bigger like kind of cymatic looking picture which is just fascinating and that just kind of goes to show if that if that is in fact you know true which i don't see any reason why not you know some beautiful snowflake that these these ancient uh uh norse were so adept of understanding deep spiritual um goodness you know it's it just blows my mind honestly and we need to we need to give a lot more homage to that in my opinion you're absolutely right the secrets of these old norse mystics is still in the norse lore but it's in the untranslated bits or it's in the poorly translated bits the people who are very good at the literal translations and the transliterations are not good at the, the magic. Even Dr. Jackson Crawford, who is amazing at his translation work, misses it. Like one of the pieces that I kind of like, oh gosh, we're so close, you missed it, is when he's talking about translating the, the charms, the nine charms that are in the Havamal. And he's like, well, the, the poem tells us what these charms are, but it doesn't tell us what to do with these charms. And he gives us great example, which is the same example I've used in ritual as how to use Galder. Is it, it says, Unrand et gel at their medriki fara, 
under a shield I chant, and those with might fair, Hailer Hilda Till, Hailer Hilda Frong, Coma there's Hailer Schwaven. And I'm like, right there, that's it. You get the chant and you get the shield, right? You hold it over your head and you're going, Hailer Hilda Till, Hailer Hilda Frong, Hailer Hilda Till, Hailer Hilda Frong. And that's where you get the galder going. And then when you're finally done, Hello, there's Kavathan. Alu. Boom. It's that's the charm. It's in there. That's the that is how you use it. I'm gonna make such a sick intro with these golders. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna clip that and I'm gonna put some sick fucking bass drum behind it. It's gonna be amazing. I can't wait. Awesome. Um when you were talking about how Odin divided up the runes and and gave them to like the dwarves and to the giants and whatnot. What do you think the meaning of this is? Is like he was handing out the language to all the nations, or what? What do you think he's yep. talking about? It, it's the language, and it's the ability for them to interact with the multiverse in ways that they understood for themselves, and that's a little bit of lore that we find woven throughout various poems that the gods, when they communicate to people, they communicate in a way that those people understand. And so by giving mm -hmm. like the dwarves the runes, their runes, it is their ability now to interact with the multiverse, with, to manifest and work with these energies in a way that is unique for them. Same way with the giants and the elves, the Alfar. It's a way unique to them so that they have the same universal access to everything. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I, in another interview, I heard you say the word enchantment. And it was right after you did like those chantings. And I was wondering, do you think that the word enchantment came from the fact that you're chanting into like runes that are inscribed onto weapons and it's giving it power? That's exactly it. <laughs> enchantment means to chant into so that's literally yeah. it and let's take it to the next step runes at the most basic level are the written form of the proto-norse and old norse languages right and if runes are also used for magical purposes you are literally creating spells with spelling mm -hmm. yeah yeah man uh I heard before too that there's like a type of rune yoga and that they would bend themselves into the position of each uh, rune and then try to stay like that for a while to uh, like empower themselves or give themselves strength. It's almost like an ancient, more ancient, like martial art form. Yep. You were talking about Stada Galder, standing Galder, standing rune magic. And it's an integral okay. part of stave magic, a stave, the stave system, S-T-A-V, stav system. And the stav people will claim that their heritage and their lineage of this work goes back generations, you know, thousands of years, and they've kept it alive. And that's cool. I hope that's very true. And it's been my finding that stav the galder, you know, hey, if it works, it works, go for it our current interpretation is just as valid as me doing runes and the chakras. It's more of a modern, modern concept mm -hmm. and it's cool. If it works, 
go for it. Right. You can do it also with the body and you can also do it with the hands. You can do, you know, put your hand in like, let's see if I can do it with a camera, like Uru shape, you know, or, you know, Fehu and hope that somebody doesn't think you're making gang signs or something. <laughs> well, that, that, that reminds me, that's like the, 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 one of the multiple things that's reminded me and of the cross connection between the ancient Vedas and the ancient Norse. There's, you know, those are like mudras, right? Mudras are very important mm -hmm. and, and mystic Vedic stuff. And there, there's a lot of cross correlation between those two, um, ancient, uh, theologies and mythologies and and i'm wondering what your understanding of, of those cross connections are and uh and maybe you can enlighten us on your opinion on that absolutely there is a very strong connection to it one of my old friends i knew a long time ago thaddeus horrell is very familiar with sanskrit and very familiar with old norse and he wrote his thesis on the comparison between vedic culture and proto-norse culture comparing words together like words for mead in old norse and sanskrit and comparing you know like the eagle and how they work together in both traditions so he found all of these fascinating direct corollaries to ancient vedic to old norse and proto-norse to show that they come from the same root indo-european language the own indo-european grouping and i will take it so far as to say that in the Vedic tradition, they have two different forms of deities. They've got the devas, which are like the, the benevolent higher gods and everything. Then they've got the asuras, which were sort of the more rebellious, the antinomian type gods that were eventually kicked out to go roam across the world, bringing their teachings and whatever all over the world. Well, the root word for asuras is the same root word for the Aesir of the Norse. The Aesir of the Norse are the uh, the asuras of the vedic tradition and the lord does tell us that odin roamed all over the world teaching people his wisdom and they called him names for, uh, in accordance to their culture as they best understood him to be so we're finding a direct correlation of the asuras in the vedic tradition to the aesir or the norse tradition being the exact same deities which potentially makes it all of them go back further than we could even think that they go back. Like putting a timestamp on any of this is just irrelevant, you know, but vibing the with all it. father. Yeah. The all, all father, all things. Yes, yeah. All father, not the some people father, it's the <laughs> all father. I don't care what culture you're from or what background or ethnicity. All father. Yeah, man. What are you going to say, Roman? Oh, um, well, there's, I, I was curious about the, um, there, you know, well, the all father, absolutely, of course, but the, the ancient Vedics as well as ancient Norse also valued the woman as well and the divine feminine. So, uh, maybe what, what's your, uh, what's your favorite, hmm, What's, what's your favorite uh, folklorish story of like an ancient uh, divine feminine of the um, old, old Norse? Well, that's actually a very good point that you brought up too, because in the Vedic tradition, when, especially when we look at Tantra, which is not 
all about sex like it is here in the U.S. You look at the Tantra, they explain that every god has a goddess and that they, they cannot do anything without working together. They have to be in comparison. They have to work together. Norse lore tells us there are 12 Aesir and 12 Asinur, 12 gods and 12 goddesses. It's the same sacred feminine to go in line with the same sacred masculine. And to that end, Frigga, Frigg, is Odin's wife. And there is like a tale, and I'm, it's been so long since I've read it or recounted it, so I'm going to mess it up. But it was the Longobards, I believe. And Frigg had promised one side victory. Odin was debating, thinking about giving the other side victory. And he's not going to argue with his wife because she can best him any single time. You know, she can, she's the only person that can outwit Odin is Frigg, his own wife. And so he says, okay, I'm going to go to bed. And when I wake up in the morning, the side that I first set eyes upon is the one I'm declaring victory for. And while he was sleeping, she turned the bed to face the Longobards so that when he woke up, he's like, fine, I'll keep my promise to you. You win this one. And that was time and time again. Odin might be considered the highest of all gods, might be, con might be considered the wisest of all gods, but Frigg is his counterpoint on everything. And she can absolutely outmaneuver and outwit him every single time. I think uh, I think I'm gonna get this right. Frigg also uh, traveled, and she disguised herself as a woman named Hyther. Is that Frigg, or is that a different one? I want to have to look into that one off the top of my head. I'm not. That one's ringing. But in any case, a bell, but it's a. Uh, in any case, the Hyther means bright. And but it also sounds like Hathor, and uh, being the goddess woman in in Egypt, or uh, what a Babylon, Mesopotamia, one of the three. <laughs> Egyptian. So, yeah, and so just the fact that you know the Acer or Odin is going around everywhere. Also, you'd probably be traveling with his with her. Um, because you also have the Assyrians, right? I'm going to have to look into that one. That that's going to fascinate the heck out of me. If, <laughs> you know, Hathor, 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 you know, there could very easily be some of those cross correlations. Because I know if we look at the old statues of Baal, it looks exactly like the statues of Frere. Oh, I mean, almost like one to one. So there's some very interesting correlations to these cultures. Mm. I don't know that I'm about ready to venture so far as to say that these were people, but there are definitely some kind of beings that seem to have ventured all over the world because we see the same teachings all over the place, you know, from India to the Middle East to the Old Norse. And I dare say it, even into South America, we find the same teachings, Mayans, the same yeah. descriptions. And I cringe because I don't, I don't understand the veracity of this. But when I start reading depictions of like uh, Veracocha in South America and how it correlates to the descriptions of Odin, I'm like, come on, 
and how they're the same kind of teachings. I'm like, oh, I don't want it to go there. But at the same time, I'm like, <laughs> what's the truth of really what's going on here? I don't know yet. I'd rather have questions and answers. Yeah, I had associations with uh, Balder and Ball. So Freya or Freyr and Ball is an interesting one. I'm going to have to look into that more because it, it just seems like, you know, there's the Baltic Sea, which is right there in the north. Obviously, there's a connection to Ball over there anyways with Balder. And then you see it all over the Middle East area with this ball warship type stuff too. And the whole, everything, all the sports have this deep esoteric meaning on how they're played and everything too, like with baseball and other ones. But um, I don't know, man, I, it, all history just fascinates me so much. And I, I try to look for all these different connections throughout all of them. And when I was listening to like the pros Ada on audio, I was just like, what? are you serious? I didn't know anything about these things. And uh, it just gave me other connections to types of things. Uh, because there was a giant to, um, I forget the name of, of the saga, but, uh, you know, Thor has to see this giant name, uh, Skrymir, that takes his uh, food wallet from him. And then he has to hit him in the forehead with his hammer so he can, like, defeat the giant. And Roman's been doing stuff about mirrors lately and, and been in, really into mirrors. And scry mirror sounds an awful lot like a scrying mirror. So you're the magic guy. Help us out with this one. I, I Yeah, before you do, too, please, just really quick, just to give a little bit more context. I was I was hoping to bring this up and thank you, Dan, because I I found it in ancient China, ancient Egypt, ancient Mesoamerica, South America, but I haven't found anything about the north. But the thing is, is there's so much ice lore, there's so much water lore, there's so much of this reflective stuff that I, it would I'm like I don't know how I didn't find any stories because it seems like if there's anywhere where there's refracted reflected and refractory reality and paradigms and being able to jump portals and things like that and mysticism, it would be an ancient Norse. So yeah, like any of those connections, please, yo, like that would be amazing. This is something that's lost in time. It is absolutely lost there, but I agree with you. It has to be there. There are little hints of it. Excuse me. There are little hints of it, not necessarily in the lore, but a little bit in the folklore because scrying has been around forever. You know, having a black pot with some water in it and just staring mm. into it. Now, Skrymir, I have to go back and look it up uh, because the, the word is failing me about what Skrymir means, but I'm sure it's not scrying mirror because there's another word that actually describes it that's much better. Mm. And I got to do a little bit of a somewhat long-winded explanation to get into this. That's fine. Do it. We love those. Seen, our favorite. We've seen in modern times things like, you know, the Igis Hjalmar, the Helm of Awe, or the Vegsviser. And people are going, oh, yeah, Vegsviser, that's a Viking compass, right? Eh, wrong. 
in the old Norse times. Remember, Viking period was between 800s and the 1000s. That was it. Just time frame right there. And they were Danes. They were Swedes. They were Norwegians. Not so much Icelandic, but somewhat Icelandic. They were mainly Danes, Swedes, just those Scandinavian countries that were there. But when we get to the Eigeshjelmer and we get to the Vegsvisir and we get to these things that are called Galdrastafer, magic staves, they are specifically found in medieval Iceland books, Icelandic grimoires from the 15 and 1600s, 500, 600 years after the Viking period. So the Vikings did not have a Vegsvisir. The Vikings did not have the Eigeshjelmer. The Eigeshjelmer is mentioned in Norse lore as a treasure that you can win from killing a dragon. Sure, dragons have it, but we don't know that it's the same symbol. And that's the key. We don't know that it's the same symbol. Now, in a few of these Icelandic grimoires, there is something called a skugsjál. Skugsjál. Skug means shadow. Xiao means see or to see, to see the shadow. And when you stare, the, the, there's formulations in how to use it, but the idea is that if you stare into the middle of the skewed Xiao, you can see across the worlds, across the nine worlds. You can see across and see many different things. The skewed Xiao looks strikingly familiar, very, very, very similar to uh, Baron. Uh, Papa Legba's Vave. Very, very strikingly similar to that one. And their description of staring at it and looking at it and that it's called the Shadow Sea tells me that this is Black Mirror working. That this is what we're using to work with a Black Mirror, which is my primary seance tool. This is the tool, like in my office here that I'm at, I've got five black mirrors in this office, two big ones, no, six, three big ones and three small ones that are in here. I take it back, seven. I keep counting. I've got seven black mirrors in this room. And my image of the skewsiao is way over there. I'm not going to go grab it, but it's on the other side of the room. So I know that these scrying mirrors and these black mirror in various forms were a part of the lore, were a part of the necromancy. It's just because the books were written down as selective writing and things were left out and not carried through. We don't have it there, but I'm sure that these little hints of tell us that that was a integral part of the work. Yeah, I knew it. I knew uh, it. It ma makes so much sense that like, and it makes even more sense that it's that esoterically hidden because it's potent. Yes. Um, you know, when I think of like Norse mythology, I always think about warriors, berserkers, mushrooms, um, these types of things. I never really think of magic so much in Viking mythology and, and whatnot, or the Viking people, Nordic people. Can you describe like what the magic was, how they were using the magic with the runes, what they were uh, inscribing it on? and how they were, you know, doing these seances or channelings or whatever types of things that they were doing. Absolutely. There's a great saga called Eil Skala Grimson, Saga of Eil Skala Grimson, 
And in the small little portion that the main character of the saga is in, there's a, a story of him coming to a man's house who has a sick child in bed. And the kid just can't get out of bed, seems to be getting worse. And Ale explores the kid's bed, see what's going on, and finds a whalebone with some runes carved on it. Mm. And he's like, what are you people doing? Throws it into the fire, <laughs> basically chastises him, says, if you don't know what you're doing, don't do this at all, because you didn't carve the right staves onto this whalebone. So he sits down and starts to carve the right runes onto the whalebone, puts it back in the kid's bed. The kid's starting to get back up the next day. So that's kind of one of the examples of it. We do have a lot of amulets that are found that have runic inscriptions in it. You know, like the word alu, which is a manifestation formula, or laukaz alu, which is a healing formula. So we do find these amulets to, to promote healing and well-being and wealth all over the place. Why the whalebone? Runes could be carved on anything. You know, it didn't matter. And I, there weren't specific about why that whalebone, but that's just what was in the lore. They didn't say why. Just, just to me, I think of like whales and like, echolocation and sonar type shit or something you know <laughs> and i'm wondering if maybe there's some type of connection of using the bone and because it has that connection to vibration or something already maybe or maybe it was just what was around i don't know yeah. <laughs> well i'm curious too about now i'm now I'm how many river whales, whales are there well there 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 had to have been some boat building or some sort of connection with whales is there um is there like any good stories with whales? I'm curious. I love whales. I think whales are some of the most fascinating mammals on the planet. And uh, I, I love like the, um, you know, like the polar regions and, and the Inuits and, and like people using the blubber and, and making boats out of the skin. I think that is just having to do that, like living in an area where that's what you, that's what you have to do. And that's what you do. That's part of your life. Like I, that's so much like, I'm like, yes, you are, you are so real. <laughs> Thank you for being you and doing all the things. Anyways, Wales, Norse, is there what's what's a good story here? I'm gonna bum you out. There's not really any. Oh <laughs> <laughs> sorry. No, it's all good. That's all good. I uh I, I just do I do love and respect whales. I've I lived in Hawaii for a long time, had a lot of interactions with whales. I'm from uh, born in Washington next to the uh, Puget Sound, the Strait of Juan de Fuca, orcas all day, like going through there. And yeah, they're just they're really special animals. I think I, I may have been a whale, hopefully uh, at some point. I know I've been a whale in a dream and that was really cool. Nice. Uh, big, big, powerful <laughs> vibes on that. Um, so orcs, orcs, orcas. Orcs, orca. No. Ooh, I'm thinking some sweet American. D and D characters here. Hey, so uh, <laughs> I, I would I would love to stick on the magic and the amulets and uh, yes. and the runes and stuff because it's fascinating and you know I, um, magnets, mirrors, uh, metallurgy, craftsmanship, uh, jewelry, threads, fabric, textiles. You know, the, these things are woven throughout every single culture 
And that's what makes it culture, right? When you start to establish these things, like this culture has these textiles, these cultures has these jewelries. What are some of the more magical items that were considered like clothing items in ancient Norse or something as, as a piece of wear? Well, the idea of clothing in and itself is magic. Oh, wow. So when we go back to Frigg, <laughs> when we go back to even Frigg, one of her key tools is the distaff which is used for spinning threads. And she's also known about the weaving of the cloths because you see a woman in the home at this time period would have been spinning like crazy. Yeah. And they didn't have the, you know, the wheels that you could sit to spin it. You had the distaffs and you had the drop spindles where you were mm. spinning and you were spinning that like crazy with linen and with wool all the time, just so that you had enough threads, not just for sales, but just for the clothes in and of themselves. Yeah. And when we look to the lore of the Norns, you know, the, the fate givers, the lore originally says that they're carving runes, they're wristing the runes of fate. But there are some mentions of like Desir, which are like higher level women, higher level women that are like weavers of fate also, taking a thread of fate and weaving this and weaving it through that. So Frigg is associated with spinning, with weaving of the clothes, and so you can imagine that a woman who is well aware of Frigg's gifts and of magic, who is spinning her intentions into the thread that gets woven into the cloth that her family wears. So the very idea of the clothes becomes an embodiment of that intention. And that's one of Frigga's gifts is through the spinning and through the weaving. That reminds me of that term psychic uh, goo or psychic residue kind of uh do you know that that aspect where like you know you walk a mile in someone else's shoes you might be putting a lot of their energy into you and uh pass that on and uh, consciously and as a as a magic-y type of human which i just said the word magic-y um hopefully i edit that out i said it twice now say it one more time and we might all just disappear magic. anyways uh <laughs> 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 gone turn to dust uh uh but psychic psychic residue or, or this cosmic goo that is kind spiritual of like contagion spiritual so there we go I, you know we've been talking a lot about the norse and i love it but you do have this other half of you that is uh into the paranormal side and i don't want to dig you don't want to start fear uh go too off but how how do you look at the modern magic modern paranormal and just kind of like what's what's your favorite correlations between these old Norse mythos and some modern magic type of rituals maybe maybe even um maybe even spiritualism itself which is a whole of thing I just I love the rise of spiritualism starting to study that more it's also crazy it's a complete subject also it's, to uh, build that bridge I'll talk about mysticism and my understanding of mysticism mysticism is the undercurrent that underlies all religious paradigms, all spiritual practices, that it gives us that ability to peel away all of the layers of like, why the runes, why the shapes, the names of the runes, why do we do all of these practices? Well, we get to the very root of it. We are conscious beings living in a conscious universe, and we have a conscious connection with everything. And the runes and the trappings of ritual and all of the tools, you know, the candles, the incense, the bowl, the horn, whatever, are just tools to help our consciousness tune in 
to those certain frequencies and those certain states of being. I will always say that the true secret of the runes is that the runes are the subtle connections between the subtle parts of our own consciousness and the subtle layers of reality. And we could use the, the vibration, that frequency and intention to influence all of those things. And so it doesn't have to be runes. It doesn't have to be runes with a sacred formula of alu. It could be Vedic mantra and Buddhist mantra where they're saying aum. It could be Middle East where they're saying hallelujah. It's the same sounds, the same concepts that are being put forward. So the underpinning of this is we live in a conscious reality, a conscious universe, and there are spiritual beings everywhere all the time. The old Norse knew it. The old Norse knew that they had nature spirits. They called the hidden folk, the Huldu folk that were living all around them. They knew they had ancestral spirits that were with them in their home. They knew they could go to the burial mound and sit on the mound called Utaseta and have a conversation with a person buried in that mound. They knew that they could call upon all of these spirits in all of these times because it was a natural part of their world. And we get into the modern times and we've been told that if it's spiritual, it's evil, it's demonic, and that it's not natural, which is just not true. And so that is one of the biggest things that I'm pushing out there right now is to help people realize that the supernatural is completely natural. The paranormal is completely normal. And what's not normal is we've been taught to be cut off from it, to tune it out, to turn away from it since childhood. We've been ridiculed. We've been cast out. We've been teased and taunted because we want to tune into this stuff, which is a natural, normal thing to do. The old Norse knew it. They had ways of working with it. And I think it's now time for us in the modern world to recognize we are spiritual and physical beings living in a spiritually prominent world. That's right, baby. I love that. Well, we're on this uh, paranormal talk. Can we get into like the what a daemon is and what a demon is and like ghost and spirit? Is there different definitions for those? And what what do you think those each different individual things represent? Sure. I love the concept of daemon, D-A-E-M-O-N. It's an old Greek concept, basically means your higher self, your higher being. And so I really want to tease the hell out of some of these fundamentalists <laughs> and put together some like spiritual practice, you know, do an old tent revival kind of thing where we're doing daemonic possession, where we're letting people get in tune and become this, the embodiment of their own higher self. So that's what a daemon is. It's just your higher self. Hey. And so when you think demonic possession, it's you're becoming your higher self living in the flesh, right? So it's one of those great terms to freak people out. But a demon is a bastardization of the word demon because, okay, I'm going to get soapboxy here. When we get to the, Chris, the Christian traditions, if it's not within their little tiny framework of their own practices, it's demonic, it's evil, mm. it's terrible. And so we turn the daemon into a demon and it becomes an evil thing. Ooh, that's we uh, get to like the Goetia. They right? take the they take the monad out. I just realized that you take the monad, the number one, the pyramid, the A, the I am so sorry. Please continue. You're good, you're good. So we we get to you know the pseudo monarchia, 
demonia, the false hierarchy of demons, you get to the Goetia, the book of the demons, which are medieval manuscripts about demonology. You know, these are the 72 demons of the Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. When we look at every single one of those, and I mean, every single one of those, they were benevolent and loved gods of the Macedonian, the Canaan, the Babylonian religions that were demonized by the Christian tradition because they weren't Jesus, Mary, Joseph, whatever. They didn't fit into the paradigm. So therefore it must be evil. And if you're going to be working with these things, they're evil, they're terrible, they're awful, which is like, no, not at all. And so when today, when we encounter a demon, this is my personal observation of it. This is my personal experience of a demon is a person thinks that they are interacting with something evil, that there's something bad and terrible going on. Maybe it's in an abandoned asylum, or maybe it's fitting in with their own personal religious belief. And we are powerfully creative beings as human beings. They will create this entity that lives up to its expectations. And now this thing is fairly real, not fully real, but fairly real and is manipulative, it's controlling, it does these evil things, but it's easy to get rid of. You just, just shift your own belief system. You shift your own energy dynamic around you. And I teach people to do this all the time. This is a good part of my clients is I'm teaching them how to do this energy shift so that these bad things and the paranormal aren't really there. Because personally, my I'm 50 years old. I've grown up with this. I've lived with this my entire life. I've helped people over the decades, countless people with paranormal issues over the decades. And I can tell you that the paranormal realms, it's actually pretty cool. It's pretty chill. Most everything out there is like human beings out there. They just don't care if you exist or not. You're just there unless you mess with them. And then you're like, what the hell are you doing? They just don't care. But most of the things outside of the not caring about you actually has your best interest in mind, you know, guides, teachers, loved ones, they do want your best interest. But when things go sideways, when things go wrong, almost, almost, almost all of the time, it's us creating it and making it. And we believe it to be true. Therefore, it is true. And we substantiate it. And then we get ourselves into all sorts of problems, which just a mindset shift. We live in a conscious universe to shift the mindset and all that bad stuff just really literally just goes away. I want to talk, uh, I want to ask you about your, um, your concept of uh, trauma and the energy of trauma, because, you know, the visions I'm getting there is like, I totally, I totally dig that. I think, I think there's also the vibrational, you know, wave that you're sending off into the paranormal constantly, that's going to get reverberated on how you're viewed. And so like, generally, if you're pretty, just like high vibe, and then you're going to be left alone a lot of times. But you know, there's those little like windows, like me personally, I'm vibing at the highest, almost just constantly, you know, like, but there's times I'll notice when I'll allow my mental to, to allow something to get in from the outside. Like I know those moments because I, I, I've been digging into consciousness for before I even knew what the fuck consciousness was. Cause I grew up in the woods, you know, like I've been, I'm just naturally very curious about the natural world and things. And I've always known there's been very, there's everything in the system is completely fucked and it should, it just, the system itself is, is, I mean, you could <laughs> just to play on words, you know, it's demonic on its own because it's been taken away 
from the daemon. It's the higher self is not a higher society. The society is not as it once was at a golden age period where then thus the spirit of, you know, coexisting with your higher self exists anymore. That just isn't really the case. And hopefully, you know, we're segueing back into that. That would be really great. And, you know, I think cyclically, that's the thing. Um, I am getting somewhere with this, by the way. <laughs> um, trauma, his idea of trauma, like personal trauma or how this relates to the demons. Exactly. And so how, like what your vision of like trauma itself is as an energy and how that gets passed along between those realms. It's a valid question. That's not going to be easy to answer. So bear with me for a moment here. When working with spirituality, when working with energies, the key most important rule is similarities attract and perpetuate. Whatever your inner world is, is going to attract something from the external world to you. And that's going to feed, going to create a feedback loop to create this system that justifies itself, proves itself to exist. It's there. Trauma comes with a lot of ranges of emotions. And every emotion has an energy to it. Every single emotion has energy and we're outputting that energy and that comes back to us. And there are a bunch of different kinds of trauma, you know, there are all sorts of it. And we've all experienced it to some degree, one way or another. So we're producing that energy out there. Sometimes it can draw something in that is a homogenous nature that will feed off of that energy to perpetuate it. Sometimes we're creating something to perpetuate that energy state. Now, this is also why I do shadow work, big time shadow work. I do a lot of shadow work with people because over the years I've worked with people on spiritual growth and spiritual development, both with runes and the paranormal stuff, all sorts of working of the spiritual stuff. And we come to roadblocks, we come to dead ends. And you just can't peace, love, and light your way out of everything. You just can't move yourself to be positive and happy about it. Sometimes we got to get into the nitty gritty and the awful icky stuff. You know, this person just really pisses me off. Well, why? Let's go into that. Let's really explore why you're pissed off about that. Find out what that means about you, where you learn to feel that way. And now we can finally clear that shadow, integrate the lessons from that shadow and who you really are. And then layer by layer, piece by piece, we can get rid of that. Now, trauma can do the same kind of thing is it can cause a roadblock. It can cause an emotional roadblock. Like I'm not going there. I'll give you a very benign case of trauma and we're not going there. This I'm just going to give you very simple because like I said, trauma can be very complex and it's unique to every single individual. My sister and I grew up in the exact same house. You know, she's seven years older than I am. We experienced the exact same phenomena. And I was talking to her the other day. My mom still lives there. And she's like, you know, when mom dies and it comes time to clear out the house, you're doing the basement. I don't want to go down there. I'm too scared of it. And I'm like, you mean the ghosts? And she's like, yeah, I'm not going down there. And I'm like, really? It's like, we grew up in the same house, had the same experiences, but those experiences traumatized her to the point where she wants nothing to do with the paranormal. She shut that completely down. She doesn't want to have that spiritual experience. She doesn't want to have that spiritual growth. She's just completely blocked it off, cut it off because those moments were traumatizing to her where they were fascinating and curious to me. So we had two different experiences of the same thing. 
but that trauma is blocking her spiritual growth because she refuses to do anything about it, refuses to acknowledge it, won't have anything to do with it. Wow. And it might be too personal of a question, but how do you do shadow work with your siblings? Is that tough? If you do, I I bet it's like not the easiest thing to do with somebody that's so close. Yeah. When it comes to shadow work, I, I won't do it with people I love. Yeah. Just because it creates a connection that I don't, is not good, but I will do it with clients and people that I don't know. And we can build a rapport in a client. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not any of these. I'm a spiritual guide. I'm a spiritual teacher, but in like this teacher student kind of relationship, I'll do shadow work, but that, but with only in those parameters. Yeah. Um, th- one of Roman's favorite words is egregore, mm. uh, typically because he can't say it very often the right way. Uh, can you can you tell us what an egregore is, and and yeah, in some detail? An egregore is a collectively created entity. Whenever we tell stories at a community level about something, our collective beliefs gather together, again, because we are powerfully creative entities, our our collective beliefs gather together to create this entity. Like in old, old times, people gathered around a fire at night talking about the things that are lurking in the tall grass and that if children get too close to the tall grass, the more they tell these stories, the more they're creating this entity that thrives off of their belief. And now they're creating rituals and altar spaces to protect their children. And eventually as the story has evolved, this thing that was once taking their children into the tall grass now becomes the protector of children. And they create amulets for it and all these rituals. And now they've got this great, wonderful protective entity that they created through their continued mutual beliefs. Mm-hmm when we talk about a haunted location, like a, an insane asylum that's now abandoned, absolutely horrible, awful things happened in that place. People with very deep trauma, very deep psychological problems that were creating all of these energy patterns, but we're telling our stories about how awful this place was, how terrible it was. And when paranormal investigators go in, they experience this, they experience that, they're telling those stories and they're creating the egregore of this location. And now another paranormal investigation team goes in there and sure they're getting the other spirits and the revenants that are there, but then they come across the big nasty, the big awful dark thing that's there. That's the egregore we created. And I will go Mm. so far as to piss people off to say (laughs) that every God, every demon, every angel, in every religion is an egregore of one form or another. A great fictional representation of egregores comes to us from the TV series of American Gods. I don't know if you guys ever saw that one, but there's this episode where the main characters comes to Ostara's house because it's Easter time mm. and she's got all of the gods that are coming to play. Well, this is also, you know, Jesus time, right? In in Ostara's house are countless versions of Jesus. There's the ones walking on water. They're the ones that have the whole the stigmata in their hands. 
They're the ones doing the healing. And the reason why she says is because every different version of Christianity has a very different version of Jesus. And they all come to her house at one time to celebrate Easter together. And that's kind of how egregores work. Just all of these multiple cultural things create, like imagine how many different Lucifers there are running around because of that right. exact same thing. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, the, the egregore too. And there's something there. I can't remember where I heard it or what it is, but uh, uh, there's the fallen angel of Greg, the Gregorian or Gregory. The Gregory. Gregory, yeah, and it, there, I, I think maybe I, I heard that, and then I started thinking of egregores, and I thought they were connected somehow. Is that is that a thing? Yeah, Gregory and egregore come from the same root words. They're basically makes the sense. same kind of things. Nice. Yep. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense because like fallen angel, and then yeah. you know, create creating that paradigm. It's just like there we go. Plus, my roommate's name is uh, Greg, and I was like, that makes sense. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, because. To me, like when you say it, you say egg, Gregor. So it's almost like a like a creation mm. of this Gregor. Like the egg is the the you know the the birthing the of, of yeah what, yeah created homunculi egg. You know you you they they yeah. making they making fake homunculuses inside of eggs. I seen it. I seen a guy do it on YouTube and read a bunch of old alchemical books with it too. Uh, but yeah. I wanted to, uh, to dive back into the Norse stuff, how we can, uh, maybe bring what we were talking about, you know, dimensional realms, uh, egregores, uh, into the ancient Norse. So I wanted to ask about sacred sites or like this understanding of the earth magnet magnetic grid or, or uh, earth and magnetics properties. Because, you know, we know that um, cathedrals, old cathedrals were built on like ley lines and sacred sites, and they have this heightened earth and consciousness or magnetic property. And I'm wondering, because I, I haven't read much of the old Norse books, I can't, I can't recall any stories on, on my own of them connecting with this earth and grid um, or using the ley line system at all. It's not in the lore to use ley lines or earth, earth grids but we know there's something to it because heathen temples were definitely built in very sacred places. Absolutely. And when Christianity came in, they raised the heathen temples and built their churches on top of it ah. primarily to erase the heathen past, right? Classic but at syncretism. The, same time, the Christians coming in did know about ley lines because they had the cathedrals throughout mainland Europe and through the, the rest of the world, they knew about those sacred places. And so they probably would have kept incorporating that when they went into the Norse. It's not there overtly, but we can surmise. We're going to have to guess that that was there because nothing in the lore says it, but it makes sense that they did. Wow. What about portals? Cause uh, Roman brought up portals too. What do you, what are portals? What do you think they are? Or what do you know they are? And are there more of them? Multiple answers to this one. Yeah, portals exist all over the place. They are just a, at the basic level, a portal is just a patch of energy that makes it easy to draw certain spirits to certain places, right? You have an open mm -hmm. portal in your house and it's just an energy vibe. I don't want to use that word, but it's an energy <laughs> vibe that 
creates a magic-y kind of place <laughs> so that certain <laughs> spirits could come into it. <laughs> magic-y. There you go. There, yes. it's And so we can all create these portals. <laughs> I teach people how to create portals on purpose to help get rid of spirits, cross over spirits, or bring certain spirits to them. We create portals all the time. But in the Norse lore, if we get into some multidimensionality, oh, there we yeah. go, we can't speak that word. It's there too. <laughs> magic key stuff. There are, yeah, magic key stuff. They talk about <laughs> in a few places, like a hill, a mound, that when you come to it at a certain time of night, a certain time of year, this mound is raised up on red pillars, like three red pillars. And you could see like elves or interesting kind of people partying in there. Now, if you were to go into that mound, for you, you might be there a half hour. You come back out, two years have passed. Time doesn't work the same way. Then we have fairy circles, modern word for it, but you know, you find the mushrooms that are in a circle. And the same kind of thing, you go into it, you go into the underworld, you go into another realm, you think you're there for the night, just hanging out, whatever. You come back, 80 years have passed, and you're, you were thought dead. So there are ample examples of these in Norse lore that something is going on. There was something that these people were tapped into that they knew there was this multidimensionality that time moved differently. It's in the lore, but we don't know exactly quite what that is. But there's something to it somewhere. Man, it's just every there's nothing. There's never a time period that there's not esoterica in that time period. You can go far every time we go back to the furthest, far back. There's always something that would be considered the occult or esoteric of that time because it's just it's just like shh, you know it's we, we know it's there, but we're not gonna talk about. Okay, you're just like, got you, you know, it's fascinating. It's I mean, I love it. And that's, that's what makes our jobs amazing. You know, we know we'll have work forever, for always and ever until the end of time, because there's with, always shit to dig into with, with the mounds and stuff, um, because they're similar to pyramids. And, you know, the modern day pyramid is said to have been like a tomb of the of Pharaoh or whatever. Uh, and it's pretty rejected now that most people don't believe that. But when you go to the mounds, you see that they were burials mm -hmm. underneath. So I, I'm wondering if is do you know of any connections between mounds and pyramids, or uh, because it's it's interesting that two different civilizations would build similar type structures or you know are we talking about norse mounds did i miss something here yeah norse norse mounds yeah oh yeah of course yeah norse built mounds oh I'm awesome i had gonna, no idea that's amazing i don't know if there's a direct correlation between mounds and pyramids because definitely the mm -hmm. norse buried people in mounds that's for sure but they never developed into pyramids now can we follow perhaps mounds became cairns you know piling up the stones and that cairns cairns pyramids mm. and then pyramids just got bigger and bigger maybe the norse never did that and just at the same time is there a correlation between 
the mounds found in the American Midwest and the mounds in the, in the Norse? Not really, but why did these two cultures do the same kind of things? It's And have the same gods. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we brought that up earlier too, you know, so it's like, yeah. it's just interesting because we see a lot of these types of structures and it's just like, like, what about a dolmen? Like, what did they use the dolmens for? There's so many different ideas about what those were for. Do you have any clues? Dolmens are fascinating, man. Mm -hmm. Why they would stack those stones in those precariously balanced ways mm -hmm. fascinates me, you know? Were they traps for giants, you know? Put a little food under there, mm -hmm. the giant goes and grabs <laughs> the food and the big rock crushes its head. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Were they were they like little mushroom temples, you think? Maybe they would go in there and uh, eat some mushrooms and trip out inside? Who knows? We don't or, have enough information or, uh, on what dolmens were. And talking, how they were used. talking about magnetic anomalies mm. earlier, or, you know, at least like the ley lines and stuff. Now that I'm thinking about it, this, this area that we're talking about is incredibly magnetically powerful. I mean, this, the whole coastal ways, like how rivers are even created, you know, and waterways are through extra force of magnetic energy and gravity. And so to be such a, like a mystical, um, uh, mystical culture you know like and just tied just like as we were saying earlier it's like you know don't tell it but everything's like magnetic everything's a portal here that gets so strong up here that we're tapping into it constantly like we're just you know just maneuvering through these uh these ways i just was thinking about that because i was like i was i was wondering about you know there's all these little land like scotland right like scotland is super interesting it has a huge history to it you know, and then you go to to Denmark, you know, and it's like all these little subjects, but they, you know, were kind of talking about Norse at one time, but when did it start to fragment off into these other little like sub Norse or, you know, when they started to be their own culture. It goes back to the migrations of humanity. Who knows? It's yeah. The old Norse, you know, the old Norse always were fragmented. They always were tribal they always were their own little villages no matter what that they've just always mm -hmm. been that way they didn't turn into a big cohesive whole until we started getting closer to modern times mm. but yeah just it's always been that way That's so much so much to dig into with that it's it's, er, it's not earlier when you were talking about daemons i've heard also that the tuata de danan were called uh the daemon uh and they were like highly spiritual beings. So like the whole idea of the daemon being the higher spirit, your higher spiritual self, it seems like maybe almost that maybe uh, because they even started calling them the godmen too, and the, or the daemon. Uh, so it's an interesting correlation. Do you know much about the Tuatha de Danan? Or I can't say that little out of your, you never heard of them? It's ringing a little bit of a bell, but not too much. Help me to better understand. <laughs> they they invaded uh they they invaded Ireland and uh, Scotland later, uh, and they fought the like the Fearbolg and the um, uh, some other group. Fomorians. I have to tell you, I am incredibly naive about the Celtic stuff. As I was say, the Twelfth Day Dunan is straight up Celtic Celtic mythos. I'm completely naive on that. Yeah. It's it's one of those things like 
I buried my head so deep into the Norse that I forgot to lift mm-hmm. it up and look at some of the other <laughs> <Yeah>. stuff. <laughs> no, it's fine. You know, sometimes, you know, just because people know a lot about one thing doesn't mean they don't know about another subject. So sometimes you can kind of get that cross idea. And because they're both like Northern types of people, I just, you know, maybe, I will, maybe not. I, I was talking I, you know, to got to take a shot sometimes. I was talking to yeah. a professor and he was like, I was on, on the phone, like, right. I was looking up just like some random stuff. And like, I was like, I saw a phone number. I was like, okay, I'm going to call this guy and ask if he wants to be on the podcast. Like, I'm going to call him. <laughs> Thought that was a good idea, right? It wasn't. Always email. Always, always email. Even <laughs> if there's a public phone number there, like, don't fucking call the guy in the middle of the day. You know, you're, you're... anyways. Um, and uh, he was this really nice, like, Indian guy, you know? So there was a little bit of a language barrier. Um, but, and so we were having a little uh, issue communicating just a little bit over the phone because I was having some internet lag. And, uh, <laughs> He, but he basically told me that uh, that it's like, you know, a lot of people, especially when they're writers, when they're big researchers and things, they don't want to talk too much outside of the realm because then it's just like, well, then, you know, like he's like, I'm not going to come on your show and tell you the history of magnets, basically, because I just... <laughs> I was like, I don't, I'm, first of all, like, you know, I'm going to go out here trying to sound like, sound like some fool. And I was like, you know what? That's facts. Maybe I should start, to- stop talking about shit. I don't know about as well. <laughs> show, Cause sometimes I'm just going deep <laughs> off the rabbit hole. Anyways, side tangent. Um, I'm pretty sure I messed up that miscommunication with that man. I hope he does come on to tell us about magnets. Um, very curious about magnets. Uh, anyways, it was a long-winded, uh, basically a splurge of word salad nothingness. And I, I have a, um, I do have a question here uh, on my notes. I wanted to ask you about your, uh, your viewpoints on Ragnarok and like the cycles of the Ragnaroks. And if we, if we, you think that's a thing at all, if you believe that into your reality, and if, if maybe we're gonna answer one at some other point in the future. Ragnarok, and when it comes to end-of-the-world tales, I always treat every single end-of-the-world tale with a great deal of skepticism because for as long as people have defined what the end of times look like, we've been experiencing it. Right? It's been <laughs> going on over and over again. But mm. now when we actually get into Ragnarok and we start to break down the constituent parts of it and really look at it as the gods as personal archetypes rather than entities. When we look at the world of Midgarth, whatnot, as our own personal life, we see that the tale of Ragnarok is actually a dark night of the soul. It's a time when everything in our life just comes to an end, when we hit rock bottom, when everything we thought was, was, is gone. It's just laying in ruin and destroyed, but there's hope. Because, you know, when you hit rock bottom, there's your foundation to build off of. There's the things that you can grow from. And the Ragnarok is all of that. It's all of that telling. And the key component to that is studying Baldur. You know, Baldur, the most beloved of all the gods. Baldur, who is killed through treachery, right? Loki and Hother. So Baldur went to Helheim, the, the Norse world of the under dead, of the dead. And there Balder had to stay because Hell said, sure, I'll let Balder go if everything in all the worlds cries for him. But Loki disguises himself as a giantess named Thok and refuses to. 
So now Balder is locked in Helheim until at the end of Ragnarok, when Balder comes back as the main ruler. Odin's no longer the ruler. Now it's Balder. And that's telling us when we get into these dark times, the dark night of the soul, that happy part of us, that most beloved part of our life is locked in the underworld. It's dead. It's just not there. But when we get through it, when we integrate the lessons from it, when we clear those shadows, when we learn to gain our strength from it, then Balder, the best part of us, the true part of us, that happy, joyful part becomes the ruler again, becomes that lead in our life. So I think Ragnarok is not the end of the world. It's just an end of a phase in your life. And it's time to grow out of and move on to the next phase. Yeah, that's that makes a lot and a lot of sense. You can connect that to the deep spiritual journey that 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 we're all on. And yeah, that, that was really great. Thank you for that. I, I almost needed to hear that right in that moment. You're welcome. Uh, if we if we could get back into the, a little bit of the paranormal stuff, uh, I heard that you have what you call whispers mm. that can you tell us about your whispers? Yeah. Whispers is my term for guides. They're just spiritual entities that I've worked with since I was a kid. Uh, they fluctuate sometimes that, you know, always changing one pops in one pops out mm. different ones over the years. I don't use words when I communicate with spirits. Just I, I suck with names. So they don't have names. They're just who they are. And the reason why I call them whispers is they stand in stark contrast to the din of the mind. You know, the mind is just going, 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 going all the noise. But when you learn to quiet the mind and you get to that subtle, quiet part, that's where you pick up their communication. And again, it's not words, it's concepts, it's ideas. It's the stuff that underlies the words. You know, like if you were to take a sentence you're about ready to say, you can distill it down to the meaning that doesn't have words to it. They transmit that meaning but it's so quiet. It's so subtle compared to the rest of my mind. So I call them whisperers because it's just like they're whispering, but they're higher level beings, higher level entities that are guides, teachers, whatever you want to call them. And I've worked with them my entire life. I remember talking to them as a kid on the playground in elementary school, and I still talk to them every day. Mm. Do you, do you have like, it's like the spiritual side of things kind of gets me sometimes. I kind of, I don't understand very much. Do you have like a concept of, of what the spiritual world is? Do we coexist with the spiritual world? Is the spiritual world separate from us? Is there uh, uh, any like Norse mythology that helps like describe this spiritual world at play? Um, I know like the Gananga gap in the fire and ice thing is a kind of, maybe reminiscent of that. Ginunga gap is really the, the chaos void of nothingness and that what the, the single monad, you know, the singularity, and then out of that came the duality of fire and ice and then mm -hmm. came all of the elemental stairs of existence, but that's that. Another way I think to better explain spirituality is Let's go back to the universe's consciousness. This is something even high-level uh, particle physicists, quantum physicists will tell you. The universe is a level of consciousness. There is consciousness to it. 
And that consciousness, let's say, exists at this layer of pure consciousness. There's no light. It's darkness. It's just consciousness, not even energy. And then that condenses down into spiritual energy, just for want of a better word. It's just spirituality, the spiritual beings. That can condense now into electromagnetism, as we know it, light, which can now condense down into matter and form. And so we are all the same stuff, just different densities, just different condensations mm -hmm. of the same stuff. So we hear in the new agey communities that we are spiritual beings having a physical experience or a human experience, which is not true. We are spiritual mm -hmm. and physical beings having a dynamic experience. And there's even work of uh, Dr. Hamarov and Dr. Penrose that we don't have to go into the details of that, that actually show us that the nerves of our body are generating the spiritual energy that's locked into a matrix. And that's what we call a spirit, a spirit form. So there's actual hard peer reviewed, wow. substantiated science of our spiritual existence and how it is a dynamic creation with a physical form. So we exist in a world that I would say is primarily spiritual but that spiritual energy just gets condensed into the physical as a reflection of it. So we are all of that. Awesome. And that's where, uh, that's where runes can come into play, right? To be able to help separate that void and make that vibrational state a little bit different. Yeah. Runes are like weavings, like little mm -hmm. weavings of consciousness and energy that go through all of those layers. You know, what fascinated me earlier was your connection, uh, because right when you said that I had the idea of, you know, I was like, oh, crystals do that too. And you're like, oh, but runes are, are similar to crystals because they have the same type of angular shape. Yes. Mind, mind blowing. Silicon is a, is a fascinating thing I've been trying to dig into a little bit. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think the most, there, there's like I, a lot of silicon. <laughs> There's a lot of silicon. I'm just going to say that I can't remember the number, but it's probably some of the most matter on the, on the planet is silicon, something like that. Yeah. It's super fascinating. And they, they conscious energy traveling through, through the, the, just the idea of conscious energy, like in words and, and thoughts and, um, and, and just conscious energy flowing through crystal, like just, uh, channel ways, you know, just like, just like you have, you write these runes, you're writing like a, like a line or like a maze almost at, to like a connection to the end point, just, just swimming through the waters and a lot of visuals. I love it. Do you guys ever close your <laughs> eyes uh, and just be sitting in a part where, you know, you're almost in that meditative state and you hear a noise uh, either, you know, on the right or the left side, up or down. And then you see like a, a, a shape, uh, on, in the back of your eyelids there, like uh, some sort of like mandala type of shape. Okay, yeah, I've had that. I experienced that and I was getting some acupuncture at this place in Portland, Oregon. It's called Working Class Acupuncture for any Portlandians out there. I'm sure you probably hopefully already know about this wonderful place of um, full of sofas, lazy boy recliners. And they just have a bunch of people in this room getting acupuncture, probably maybe like 30 different people. And it's really quiet in there. And I was, I had needles in me, had the, the weighted blanket on. And this was like my, this is when it started. Like, cause before this, I never noticed 
having my eyes closed and then hearing a noise somewhere and then seeing the color or a shape or something and in the darkness. But when I was in acupuncture, I was sitting there and I was just, I've, have, you, have you ever had a acupuncture, Kedrick? Yep. Okay. So you know that like meditative state you get into when the needles are there? Mm-hmm. Oh, so I, someone like opened or closed the door and it just was this orb of like blue, like snowflake that just kind of came from the side and went here and it woke me up and I was like, oh, noise. I was like, noise, meditation, dark snowflake globe sweet and then now uh during like the early part of meditation not when i'm like in it but like in that that little segue in between um i don't know if it's rem or maybe you have more uh uh background uh terminology on on what that is so like in sleep you have the rem stages but what about on your way to meditation is that rem or what is what what is that what's going on there well, it's hypnagogia, the states between sleeping and waking. And in those states, you can experience different forms of synesthesia. And synesthesia is like where you hear something, but you interpret it visually. You know, there are various forms of synesthesia that are out there. And so that all makes sense in that in that aspect. Absolutely. Synesthesia. I, I must experience that heavily. I I'm a very like when I hear things, I like start to just try to visualize it in my head because I love just, you know, the imagination and uh, synesthesia almost sounds like yep. uh, Anastasia and uh, and going, yeah, going to sleep. That's uh, super it's a super cool medical term. There are some people that it can be a bit debilitating because, you know, they hear a sound and they see colors. And yeah. so it's a wow. little debilitating to to them in that aspect. But we all can have it to various degrees, you know, where you smell something, but now you hear a sound when you're smelling something. It's just, you know, some cross communication between the senses and how the brain is interpreting that information. And we all have it, especially if you're getting into meditative states and different types of hypnagogia. Absolutely. And on your website, you have, you host meditation, right? Like you have like a special, awesome way of guiding meditation that's maybe a little different than other people would you can you you tell us about that and tell the audience about that yeah i've got a page full of different types of guided meditations and i i've been a musician my whole life so i wrote the music for it and the music is embedded with an isochronic signal it's kind of like binaural beats where the the tone will take you into a different state of mind but with an isochronic signal you don't need to have headphones on. With binaural beats, you need to do it with a headphone. An isochronic signal, you can just be in the space listening to it. A crazy example of an isochronic signal is like if you're in, uh, what was it, the old B-52 bombers, when they had the multiple prop engines, that if one of them was out of phase slightly, it would create that woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo. And if they weren't able to tune those engines to get them back into sync, it would cause them to go into deeper states of consciousness. It would kind of knock them out and make them fall asleep because of the isochronic signal that would come off of the propellers being out of phase. So I purposely put that into the music to induce different states of mind when you're working with this so that it will take you to a deeper place and have a deeper effect on you as you're following my guided meditation. And not to, uh, you know, 
you know, you want to keep your Heinz 57 recipe, you know, under lock, but, you know, to someone else who's an aspiring musician and, and, and producing stuff, I, I love playing with the DAW. Um, I'm wondering, are you doing it through panning or are you tuning them to specific Hertz or what, what, what kind of process do you have I to do have to create one that? track? That's just a drone track. Yeah. You know, it just plays basically the, the bass drone. It's just there. And then I have an isochronic signal generator on another track. And then I will use, oh, nice. um, oh gosh, what's the word? I will use sidechain compression. Sidechaining. From, yep. I'll sidechain compression from the isochronic signal to affect the drone signal so that the drone becomes the isochronic tone in itself. Wow. I just learned about sidechaining my buddy. I sent, he's like a really good producer and I sent him this track and he's just like, he's like, do you know about sidechaining? Cause you need to do that. Cause your shit is muddled. <laughs> I was yeah, like, you, muddled? like you need that on your drums. Yeah. Okay, cool, man. Yeah. Uh, super cool. I, uh, isotronic. Did I say it right? Isochronic. Isochronic. Oh, even better. All right. Shouldn't cool. Be able to remember that. Yeah. <laughs> be a sweet band name oh, actually man. uh so you put runes into music too is this is this the same thing or is this different how do you it's, how do you put runes into music it's what we were talking about before the seven vowel runes of the elder futhark do associate it with a note mm -hmm. of the diatonic scales and then you can go okay. back to runic words like uh lavu as an invocation formula or laukaz alu as a healing mm. formula mm. and so just creating the musical notes based off of the vowels and those become like the the drones and the intonations of those of those sounds mm. and and you can sing the runes right absolutely runes are traditionally sung that's what galder's all about singing the runes that's that's can you, awesome can you sing is it like the whole alphabet that is sung? And well, it's like what I was saying earlier. On the gel under the shield, I sing. Hela Hilda Till, Hela Hilda Frong. That's the kind of thing. And so, like, even if it's uh a healing formula, right? Laukaz Alu, you can just do the Laukaz Alu. So you get that nice resonant tone flowing through you and flowing through that other person so that they're now vibing on that healing frequency. Would you say that that's a good um, intro there for practicing that to open up that throat chakra and to open up the throat? I feel a lot of people are, especially you work with men, right? And I feel like a lot of men are really closed up in this area. And, um, you know, just for people listening to get you even more, cause like I want everyone to go and check out, uh, you know, your website and your, and, and your work that you do because it's fascinating yeah. very necessary uh, but but an intro for just like maybe a daily practice we can do to like uh, help our help our throats be nice and warm sure that's where we'll use the rune anzus anzus kind of looks like a letter f but with the the arms are pointing down and the word anzus is all well not, that, not just the word but the whole rune is about communication awareness and understanding one of the ways i think want you to think about the word anzus is that z at the end became an r in modern icelandic and in old norse so anzus became ansur which is 
answer. Oh. So mm. think about that. Your ability to communicate, your ability to understand, how are you better at learning things and how are you better at teaching things? Then focus on that throat center. And the seed sound for Anzus is ah. It is literally ah. So just bring your awareness to that throat center, thinking, feeling, experiencing your understanding of your best ability to communicate and just go, oh, oh, and really feel your throat vibrating as you do that. Open your throat as wide as you can and just concentrate on the vibration there with that ah sound while you are also thinking, feeling, experiencing communication and your ability to communicate and understand. And that's how you open up that energy and supercharge that energy with the rune. Wow. Um, is there any, <clears throat> like, is there a, some sort of divination uh, practice with using your hands while, while chanting? Not to nope. like open any, okay, sweet. Don't want to, you know, open no, just portals unexpectedly. Close your eyes and focus your awareness at your throat. Okay, cool. Um, now you just blew blew my mind, and I'm sure Dan's as well. And Dan probably knows this because he's. Um, I, and I told you in the email he's into um, pretty deep into the Bach saga, which is uh, it's it's an old uh, family lineage story <clears throat> from this part of the world, and in there they they go it big on the root language, right? And you just you just told us, you know a rune having connection etymologically to the word answer. And it's fascinating. And, you know, modern English, like is pulled. It's, it's, you know, all thrown in the kitchen sink, right. Or in the, in the soup pot, like it's etymologically from, from all these different languages. But I'm wondering what are some of the more popular words that, you know, um, that might surprise people that are etymologically tied to ancient Norse and the runes. Oh, all of our family words like father, mother, sister, brother pronounced the same way today as they were 2000 years ago. You know, the exact same words. Uh, the word day comes from the rune, the, the word dagas, you know, it's a rune there. The word year from yara, the sun. One of the old Norse words for sun is soul. S-O-L, there's a rune for that, which is where we get, you know, solar the word for solar and some people will call the name of the sun is soul the rune fehu became the word fe which became the word fee so fee fee. yeah like the things that you pay money for Uh, all of the days of our week you know sunday is for the sun monday is for the moon but tuesday is tears day the norse god tear wednesday is warden's day odin's day Thursday is Thor's day. Friday is Frigg or Frey's day. Freya's day. Freya. Saturday, it's the only day that kind of got thrown off. It's Saturn's day. <laughs> but most mm. of the days. Which is the, the week original are... sun, right? The first sun, the sun before the sun. Yeah. I'm following you there, <laughs> like the electric universe theories and those things. Yep. So Saturday is the only one that doesn't quite fit in. But, you know, even the days of our week come from Old Norse. Mm. directions too north south east west that's right northry sundry vestry austry those are old norse words yep and here's something else too uh that 
fascinates me with this is like so much of this, uh, you know, these, this ancient language is in our modern language, yet there's all this mysticism in between to even understand these stories. Well, I don't want to go too, like I said, you know, earlier conspiratorial with it, with like these guys, you know, these corporations like Disney and Marvel and, and all these things and uh, having this type of uh, this tie uh, into the magical world, into these old mystic theologies, right? Or these old mystic ways. And well, uh, it makes me just think now how much we are influenced as modern America by these um, Nordic, old Nordic countries like, like Denmark and Sweden and, you know, like just offshore banking and there being a lot of like, you know, a lot of corporate connections to that land there. It, it seems like at one point they reigned very high back in the day. And it, and it's always kind of been, you know, even though it went down into modern England, you know, and that was kind of the breakaway to start America. I always feel like there's like this old connection between, uh, you know, this old like homage being paid to that the, the motherland for some people, some of these, you know, uh, bloodlines running back to those those families not too sure about that one yeah i mean i i can stretch some things to fit to that but i don't have enough to to make that a valid argument at this time yes yeah it's completely speculative on my behalf absolutely uh <laughs> which i'm pretty sure you could gather that um but yeah it's i mean just tracing back any there's so many people there's so many things oh here's another question let's let's get spiritual with it real quick um real quick let's just quickly dive in deep on a, on a deep spiritual topic on reincarnation and your idea of of the souls um maybe egregorically creating more souls or if there's uh just your idea i guess on the soul the soul journey and in reincarnation um as a as a concept Right. It's been my experience and my connection that think of the higher self, your higher being is kind of like this oversoul mm -hmm. that has like tentacles, tendrils, that it exists in a place where there's no time, there's no space. It has like that ultimate consciousness existence, right? But it has like this weird hair up its butt and it wants to experience <laughs> what it's like to be a rock star. So it sticks a tendril in this lifetime and it's like, I'm going to be a rock star and I'm going to be a jerk and I'm going to be an addict and I have all these problems. And then it sticks another tendril into another lifetime and says, in this lifetime, I'm going to be like a maid that's just like scraping by at life and just cleaning people's toilets because I want to know what that's like too. And then another lifetime, it says, ooh, I want to be like a school teacher teaching people <laughs> these kind of things. And so from its perspective, it doesn't have time it's encountering all of these lifetimes all at the same time, experiencing all these experiences because it wants to, because it's like, Ooh, let me go experience what it's like to be that way. So imagine that that's all reincarnation is from our point of view. It looks linear past life, future lives, all these various lifetimes. Oh, but from your higher self, they're all simultaneous lifetimes happening at the same time. So what's stopping you from reaching out across time through regressive techniques to interact with yourself in other lifetimes and have mutual experiences and mutual communication experiences? Absolutely nothing. Do you, um, 
have any of these courses entailed in you? Do you do these some sort of regressive practices with any clients? Oh yeah, I do past life regression with clients all the time. Oh wow. I was unaware of that. I knew you had all uh, the other stuff going on. I didn't know you did past life stuff too. No, have, that is super cool. Um, it's, it's fascinating. That concept you just brought up is really beautiful to think of because it, it makes it more connected than separated, right? Even though like you as a soul experiencing these different past lives is never separated. It's all seemingly there, but it makes it nonlinear and it makes it happening cohesively, which could explain a lot of like the imagination and the dream world as well in general, which is a fascinating topic to anybody exactly. and everybody because we're all experiencing it all the time. And that is a super cool. I I'm just, I'm relishing in that actually, cause that's pretty big takeaway from this conversation for me on that. end. that's uh I'm imagining that horse too, that eight legged horse right there, you know, those tendrils into these different times. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> little, little, little off there, Roman. Um, what, what's that? What's that well, like? As we wind down here. Uh, no. Um, can you just uh, tell the fire tribe and everybody else listening uh, where they can go find your work? and what you got going on in the future and uh, kind of uh, what your soul intention or your goal is in this world and uh, for people to know or find out experience. Right. The best ways to get a hold of me is I am on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Just search for my name, Kedrick. You'll find it there. Uh, I have a website, Kedrick.com, where you can find a link to book sessions with me. And I've, I've got like a free paranormal awareness test you know you pop your email in and you go to a video mm. where i've got little five uh, uh, in this video are five little tests to see what your paranormal abilities are and then it will lead you to a course if you're curious to take deeper which by the way i've got a bunch of online courses that i've put out there that's at kadrick.teachable.com but you can also get a link from my website kadrick.com to these web these courses and coming up in the very near future is I'm putting the finishing touches on a new online web course. It's a five week, it, my digging around shows me this is the most comprehensive class online for seances. Oh, where wow. I go through how to create seances, how to develop your abilities, what to do if anything goes wrong. And then I have a bonus week on teaching you how to use a black mirror in a seance situation. You know, I've seen other online courses for seances. They're like an couple of hours long i've got like six hours worth of materials it's like five weeks worth of course work that you do on this one so that's coming up real soon and nice. that ties into my big purpose is we live in a paranormal world and i want people to be aware that they are connected to that you are connected to the paranormal that you live in this great amazing world out there Sometimes it takes shadow work. Like right now, my big flagship program is Shadow Ascension. It's a six-week program where we go into clearing those shadows. And it's one-on-one -on -one working. You get videos and audios and all that kind of stuff. But it is one-on-one -on -one working with me. So you clear those shadows to realize, oh, this is who I am. This is what's going on in the world. This is how I'm connected to everything. And so that's a big part of what I do is just to get people to tune on, to tune in, to be aware of who they really are, what their purpose is, 
and that this world out there is just vast and amazing that we don't have to be locked into this tiny little narrow niche of things that it's like huge and expansive and you have access to the whole thing once you get out of all of the shadows and get out of all that crap but but kadrick uh seances and black mirrors are evil <laughs> you know that they didn't get to be evil until the medieval time period they were a natural normal part of human existence and they are still today oh they were to get through that all that crap they were made evil made evil in the medieval man that's that's you know uh, that's not even like it's so like the whole medieval renaissance period is so full of magic it's like uh history is swashbuckled abso fruit yes. abso fruit and the black mirror stuff I'm, I'm curious about um what's the uh do you mind throwing out numbers on how much these courses are yeah like the paranormal awareness i believe it's been a while since i looked at it i think it's 397 i've got a basic intro to shadow work is like 47 getting to know your spiritual neighbors you know like your field guide to subtle beings and astral entity is 97 uh you know they're all over the place different prices affordable though that's awesome man you make it see that's a great thing doing work you know you got to get paid for your time and also it's just like you know these are that's accessible and amazing thank you so much for doing that brother uh great life's journey you're welcome thank you yeah i i think you also in dispelling this nature that we have in this world about everything being evil uh i, I think here on the show we try to dispel a lot of that evil type of stereotype and try to get away from that and move away from that so when i said that to you i was i was joking of course i know uh, because <laughs> i think like this magic stuff and this other this consciousness stuff is a real part of our reality and there is a lot of people like your the story with your sister they're scared of this other aspect of life and they just stay away from it they they just create these ideas about it that have been given to them over time and they don't ever look into it for themselves and i think that is like a big problem and the fact that you're trying to change that and show the positivity of even the dark shadow work that sounds oogie boogie scary <laughs> like oh no i'm gonna you know something's gonna happen to me I think that's a very positive thing and it helps people deal with their traumas and their emotions in a much more productive kind of way. So thank you, sir, for that. And thank you for coming on the show. We appreciate you and your time here. Uh, so thank you. You're welcome. And thank you too. Yes. And fire tribe. If you're not down with that, wake, wake up. up.